You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Today we're going to talk about a building in downtown Portland that was completed in 1910. But our real focus is a restaurant that originally opened in 1892 and a couple who used to go there in the 1930s. Our scene opens at the corner of Southwest 12th Avenue and Harvey Milk Street, the four-story Whitney and Gray building. Clad in cream-colored brick, it's a handsome piece of architecture with galvanized iron cornice brackets and pilaster ornamentation. The architect, William Knighton, was once the state of Oregon's official architect He designed the Oregon Supreme Court, for example, as well as the Sentinel Hotel on 11th Avenue here in Portland, formerly known as the Governor Hotel. Yet ultimately, the Whitney and Gray building is best known for its ground floor tenant, Jake's Famous Crawfish, which is the second oldest continuously operating restaurant in the city after Huber's, and a Portland institution, including its cool neon sign out front. The original Jake's was a saloon at 18th Avenue and Washington Street, founded in 1892, called Mueller & Meyer. The owners moved to the Whitney & Gray building in 1911, just after its completion. But when Prohibition arrived in 1919, the owners wanted out, selling their interest to waiters Jacob Freeman and Jay Ramesh, who sold soda pop. It was Jacob Freeman who doubled as an expert crawfish chef who lent a shortened version of his name to the new moniker, Jake's Famous Crawfish. As the name indicates, Jake's Famous Crawfish has long been known as a seafood house, and in addition to the signature crawfish, as well as cedar plank salmon and other classics, the restaurant's atmosphere is one of its distinguishing qualities, the parquet floors and wood-paneled walls, the white tablecloths and the oil paintings on the walls. In its heyday during the early and mid-20th century, Jake's was so popular that it stayed open until 4 o'clock in the morning. It was a place where mayors and bankers and traveling salesmen congregated, as well as sometimes visiting celebrities. In those days, it was frequented by visiting stars like comedian Jack Benny, singer Bing Crosby, and director Buster Keaton. Later, pop stars like Madonna even dined there. In fact, what if I told you there was a table at Jake's named for the biggest movie star of the 20th century, someone who actually went there not once, but regularly. That would be Humphrey Bogart, the star of all-time classics like Casablanca, The Big Sleep, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, The African Queen, The Maltese Falcon, and Key Largo, among many, many others. I happen to love In a Lonely Place. From 1938 to 46, the years when he became a superstar, Humphrey Bogart was married to a woman from Portland, an actress named Mayo Metho. Her first name is spelled just like the shortened version of mayonnaise. They used to regularly dine at Jake's famous crawfish while in town visiting Metho's mother. Ultimately, it was a quite turbulent marriage. 
They were known as the Battling Bogarts because of a series of angry, alcohol-fueled squabbles. For example, on a USO tour of Europe during World War II to entertain troops, Metho and Bogey got in trouble for drunkenly firing off rifles in the middle of the night with director John Huston. During one late-night rage back home in Hollywood, Metho even stabbed Bogart in the shoulder with a knife, which his employers at Warner Brothers Studios hushed up, as they did when Metho also set fire to their house. But Metho gave up her own acting career to support Bogart's, and it was very successful. With her help, he became one of the most iconic actors in Hollywood history. And besides, given the career she built before her marriage to Bogart, Mayo Metho may still be the most successful American movie actress ever to come from Portland. If we set aside her famous husband, she was a supreme talent from a very young age who had come to cross paths and work with a host of famous names on the theatrical stages of Broadway in New York City and eventually in Hollywood movies. Born in 1904, Metho was the daughter of a commercial ship captain father and a journalist mother, the latter of whom began taking the young daughter to theatrical auditions in Portland before she had even learned to read. She appeared on stage for the first time in 1909 at the age of five and later played the lead in a play called The Littlest Rebel. In 1912, the Oregonian proclaimed her the youngest leading lady in the world. Metho's name appeared in the national press for the first time when city leaders and advertising executives sent the young performer and her mother to Washington, D.C. as part of a promotional tour for Portland. She was chosen to present roses to President Woodrow Wilson at the White House. Interviewed a few days later, she told the reporter, quote, The president is awfully nice. At 18, the precocious actress left Portland for New York, determined to make her name. And within a year, Metho was discovered by famed Broadway impresario George M. Cohan, who was later portrayed by James Cagney in the classic movie Yankee Doodle Dandy. Cohan told Metho that he wanted her to become his protege and cast her in his play The Song and Dance Man, writing a character especially for her. Metho also reportedly became a lover to Cohan, who was 45 to her 19. She continued to act on Broadway stages throughout the decade. Her first film role came in 1930, a 14-minute short called Taxi Talks filmed at Warner Brothers' New York Studios that also marked the screen debut of legendary actor Spencer Tracy. The following year, Metho moved to Hollywood and garnered her first feature film role in 1931's Corsair. The following year came Nightclub Lady, her sole starring role, as a cabaret singer threatened with murder. Overall, Mayo Metho acted in 18 films from 1932 to 36, including the Frank Capra-directed Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, starring Hollywood legend Gary Cooper. In 1937, Mayo was cast in the movie Marked Woman alongside two more stars, Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis. Metho had briefly met Bogart back in New York at a party years ago, but this time they became a couple. They got married, in fact, on August 28, 1938. In the movie Marked Woman, Metho played an over-the-hill call girl, and by the time she married Bogart, she was ready to give up acting and support his career instead. In the ensuing years, Metho pushed Bogart to some of his best work. The actress Louise Brooks was quoted as saying, no one contributed as much to Humphrey's success. Indeed, the same year Metho gave up acting came one of Bogart's breakthrough roles in the film noir classic The Maltese Falcon. But by this time, the couple was drifting further apart and having some big fights. Metho was jealous, and she had reason to be. Bogart had been cheating on her. 
And that was even before the 1944 movie To Have and Have Not, when Bogart met co-star Lauren Bacall, the 18-year-old model and actress who had soon become the 45-year-old actor's next wife. Metho had once been a teenage lover to a middle-aged star, George M. Cohan. Now the tables were turned. By 1945, Bogart and Metho were divorced, and with no career left as an actress, unfortunately, she returned to Portland. Metho at first did well, investing her money wisely in real estate, but she was still drinking way too much, and it took a toll on her health. She died in 1951, just six years after Bogart left her. To me, the story of Mayo Metho and Humphrey Bogart may be somewhat tragic, but Bogart never forgot her. After Metho's death, the famous actor anonymously sent roses to her final resting place at the crematorium here every month, until his own death a few years later. Meanwhile, though, Jake's Crawfish and the Whitney and Gray building live on, even as taller towers next door and across Burnside have cast the architecture in shadows. The neighborhood, a portion of downtown called the West End, has never been more vibrant and full of life. But Jake's looks inside like it always has, the wood and brass, the waders and bow ties, and that signature shellfish. And I'm glad of it. So today in our first interview, we're going to talk with film author and historian Laura Wagner, whose latest book, Hollywood's Hard Luck Ladies, features Mayo Metho on the cover. Our second interview is about Jake's famous crawfish itself, a conversation with Brian McConnell, the restaurant's general manager, and Missy Mackey, who oversees sales for the restaurant's parent company, McCormick & Schmick's Restaurants. There are a few things I like better, of course, than movies and restaurants born from generations past, especially as their presence in our ever-changing city becomes more and more fleeting. Luckily, both are on the menu today. Wagner is a film writer, historian, and editor based in New York who has spent nearly 25 years telling stories of Golden Age Hollywood, mostly for Classic Images magazine. She is the co-author with Ray Hagen of 2004's Killer Tomatoes, 15 Tough Film Dames, and she's also the author of 2011's Anne Francis, The Life and Career, as well as the upcoming Hollywood's Hard Luck Ladies, 23 actresses who suffered early deaths, accidents, missteps, illnesses, and tragedies, which happens to feature our star lady, Mayo Metho, on the cover. Laura, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, you and I were communicating online back and forth uh, in the past couple of weeks, and I remember you talking about some pushback you'd received from uh, Humphrey Bogart film fans saying that Mayo was not a hard luck lady, and in fact she was a terrible person because she'd caused a lot of trauma to others, uh, namely uh, Bogie himself. And, you know, of course she did stab him, literally, in an alcohol-fueled rage, so, you know, it's not like that argument comes from outer space. But, uh, but ultimately, I think you and I agree that it's not really a fair comment at all when you consider the broader context of her life. And, uh, you know, among other things, she kind of gave up her career for Bogey, and then he left her for a younger woman, Lauren McCall. So, you know, what's your take on that? You know, he's an icon, and I love Bogart. And, but I don't think the people really understand that he was probably an alcoholic as well. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he participated in a lot of the problems that they had. Gloria Stewart, you know, the, the co-star of The Invisible Man, uh -huh. uh, she said, you know, because she socialized with the couple, she said that, that Mayo had bruises on her face, you know, all the time. 
Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was. It wasn't just a one-sided thing. He enjoyed it. His his son even admitted that he enjoyed that fight that he used to have with. You know, she tried to set fire to the house. Mm-hmm. You know, she obviously had other issues besides being an alcoholic. But instead of you know accusing her of you know all these horrible things, we should try to understand that she had a history of mental problems in her family and alcoholism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he helped it along. Mm-hmm. He pushed her mm-hmm. and pushed her. He's the needler. Yeah, yeah, and you know uh, I just don't understand how somebody can't look on both their stories, but especially hers as. Uh, uh, with empathy, you know, why why does there have to be a good guy and a bad guy in something because like that? Because of Lauren Bacall. Uh, At the time when he was dating the 19-year-old Lauren Bacall, and he was, what, 44, uh-huh. uh, columnists were actually saying, why doesn't Mayo just go away and let them have the love that they deserve? Huh. Well, that's not fair. Yeah. That's yeah. ridiculous. You know, Lauren Bacall was 19 years old, glamorous, Mayo was a hard-looking 40, been through the mill. Yeah. You know, and, you know, people are not sympathetic to that. They're more sympathetic to the glamorous Lauren Bacall. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. And it helps his, it helps his stardom because, you know, he's an icon, tough guy. Guys want to emulate him. They don't want to romance, you know, Mayo. They want to romance Bacall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet it's funny to be having this conversation in this day and age amidst the Me Too movement, and, and to uh, you, you can't help but wonder how things would be interpreted differently, perhaps, uh, if that relationship were playing out today. Well, she would have gotten help, first of all. I think she was bipolar. I don't think they understood it then. Um, Stephen Bogart claims in his book that she was schizophrenic mm. and that they were going to institutionalize her. Well... You know, she was paranoid that that he was going to leave her for another woman, especially a younger one, and she was right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so how how paranoid is she? She knew. I know. Maybe we could now kind of go back to the beginning and talk about what an amazing prodigy she was. And and uh, I thought it was particularly incredible just how um, how early on she seemed to be destined for this sort of thing, and that and that talent kind of ran in the family. That she had some some stage talent in her background. Uh, do I remember right that both her grandmother and maybe her aunt had been stage performers as well? Uh, yeah, her uh, her grandmother was Minnie Holman. I didn't know this either until I really started researching this, but she was uh, in opera. She was a comic opera singer. Yeah. Um, Her husband actually uh, was a drunkard, and he was put into a home. He was very violent, so I think that's where Mayo got a lot of that. Yeah. And her daughter, Minnie's daughter, was also named Mayo, and she was on the stage, and she traveled with Richard Mansfield's acting troupe for several years. But wow. then she, she settled down. Uh, and Minnie's uh, brother uh, was John Dillon, the sea captain, who, of course, was Mayo's father. And uh-huh. I think he was a drinker as well, being a sea captain. And there was, a, um, there was a, a, an instance where he beat, broke the guy, a, a kid's jaw for whistling at Mayo. <laughs> wow. I mean, Mayo was... Very pretty. It was, so, it was when I look at pictures of her when she was younger and she was the Portland rosebud. Yeah. 
you know, and, and people would come into the, uh, in Portland and she would, in, you know, have roses for them and, and greet them. And she even went to the White House, yeah. Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, yeah. She, she, you can connect her to two American presidents, if I'm not mistaken. Like, I, I seem to recall she was also a descendant of Zachariah Taylor. And then she goes, as like you say, as an ambassador to the White House and meets Woodrow Wilson. And, and he even mentions her, like, in some letter to, uh, like, the governor of Oregon or something, if I'm not mistaken. Because, yeah, because she went there. Uh, you know, in place of the governor. I mean, that's important stuff. I mean, she really, right away, Portland, who she wasn't born in Portland. She was born in Chicago. Uh-huh. Uh, but she, she got there when in 1911. So she was pretty young when she got there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they embraced her immediately. I mean, she was a big deal in Portland. At mm-hmm. The Baker Players, uh, she did so much stage there. yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, not every child star can transition into being an adult actor. And yet she also, you know, ends up going to Broadway and, and uh, she's, uh, you know, soon discovered, quote unquote, by George M. Cohan. And she, I believe she acted in a film uh, early on with Lionel Barrymore, like in 1923 or so, Unseen Eyes. And, and so, um, you know, she seemed to be on her way to becoming a, a kind of uh, a precocious uh, adult star um, fairly quickly too as well. Well, she made her film debut when she was 10, which a lot of people do not know because it's not on IMDb. Oh, wow. Um, and, and is that one of the ones uh, produced in, in Oregon? I, I know there was like a, an American lith- lithograph company that she did some uh, early film work for. Is that uh, uh, what you were thinking of? Uh, yeah, they, um, they were incorporated in 1910. Mm-hmm. And they made some, you know, they did rose festivals. They recorded stuff around Portland. And then she made her debut in Forgotten Songs, 1914. I really couldn't figure out what it was about um, because there was a fire in, in 1923 that wiped out all their movies uh. and the studio. It was a wooden studio. It just went in flames. That was the end of that. And then she was in 1923 uh, for producer Robert C. Bruce, uh, he came to Portland to do um, these movies. One was called And Women Must Weep, about <laughs> fishermen. And she was, what, 19, 18, 19 when she did this. And she played a wife waiting for her, one of the wives, that wait um, for her um, uh, husband to come back from the sea. And, of course, tragedy. This tragedy. Yeah. But um, that's where she met her first husband, who was a cinematographer, an actor in that movie. Uh-huh the uh, John M. Lamond, and that's why she made, like, like uh, about four other movies with Robert C. Bruce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and that's mm-hmm. when she went to New York. She, she went to New York with her husband, and that's when she started really doing Broadway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of the Broadway things that she did were very short-lived. And it was just very... Because, you know, when she was younger, she was doing French accents and... and uh, and Mexican, and she did every kind of nationality. Wow. And and when she got to Broadway, I think she became typed. Uh, uh. And she might have really, I don't know when she started drinking, mm-hmm. but she started to look kind of not good by 1930. She was looking older than her years. Yeah. And she became typed in, in harder parts, and that's when she did Torch Song, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which later became a Joan Crawford movie, Laughing Sinners. Yeah, yeah. 
And so you're describing her kind of starting to maybe um, be past her prime looks way wise, uh, to put it, you know, kind of crassly right around the same time she actually goes to Hollywood. <laughs> so that's kind of funny well, to think I mean, about that. Well, I mean, film too. usually types more than the stage. Mm-hmm, you, could mm-hmm. prob- you could do more, you know, diverse things on the stage. But when you get in Hollywood, they just want to put you in the same role over and over again. And she did it well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was her problem. I mean, she was she was good as a dame. Yeah, yeah. Well, what, could you talk, and with that in mind, could you talk a little bit about what some of her most important roles were? If people wanted to check out her work, uh, you know, I obviously I, I have a, uh, an affection for uh, Marked Woman with Betty Davis and, oh, and well, Humphrey Bogart, does. of course. I mean, course, that's where but... I discovered her. I know that. But Nightclub Lady, the Nightclub Lady... Uh, is very good from 1932. She's the, actually, it's not a lead, even though she's the leading role, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. She's the nightclub lady who gets killed. Yeah, yeah. But she really never had, now that I'm thinking about it, she really didn't, never had a lead. She was always a, a character actor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of a character, I guess a character actor, mind reader. The mind reader, she's on screen for maybe three minutes, uh. and it is so riveting where she accuses Warren William of ruining her life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it is so, the, the, the frenzy that she put, I mean, that woman was electric. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Hollywood did not know what to do with her, and she might have gone on like that, but then she met Bogart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what kind of, that she became the most famous for, and, and yet you have to wonder, I think uh, I wrote in somewhere a question asking you, like, just that thing, what what might have become of her career if she hadn't uh, got together with Bogart? Well, she concentrated on him, and that was that was the biggest problem right there. He didn't want her to work. I mean, you know, on stage, she introduced more than you know, the mm-hmm. song. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean... That's that's a big deal. And then she's going from that to doing these little bit parts, and it gets worse as she gets, you know, she hooks up with Bogart. It's it's these little itty-bitty parts, and she's good in them, but he wants her to stop because he wants her to just be a wife. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which is and very much, a, you know, of the times. she's encouraging him and talking him up to the front office, and actually he pro- she probably was responsible for him, you know, being who he was. Yeah, yeah, that's something else that people don't necessarily talk about, that the fact that that um that he probably learned a lot from her. Cuz she said, you know, you got to speak up for yourself instead of doing it herself, you know. Um, you know, you have to speak up to yourself. And she would actually go to the front office and say, you got to give him better parts. Yeah, yeah, cuz he was kind of typecast himself as a villain and then while they were together, that's when he became a superstar. And that's when he started <laughs> Moving away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just, it's so sad. The whole yeah. story is sad. Not thinking that she's a hard luck lady is, to me, very sad. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you know, let me ask you one other thing about Mayo and, and Bogey. Let's let's turn it around and um, just to kind of look at it in a positive way for a moment. You know, what do you think uh, they had in common or, or what, what were they like when they were at their best? It seemed like they both loved the sea, for example, and, and I feel like they both had a, some sense of maybe a, a melancholy and longing that, that they maybe t- were able to tap into for uh, as actors. She was a better sailor than he was. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was told. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, he really he loved her sense of humor. She was she was very well read. 
She was, um, she liked classical music. I mean, she was totally not what you would think she would be. You know, you look at her, you know, people look at her now and go, well, she was just a drunk. Mm-hmm. You know, she did this, she did that. But she was totally different in private. You know, and mm-hmm. it, it, and I think that that appealed to him that she could talk about anything, and that she that she liked different things that maybe actress other actresses wouldn't like. You know, back then, I mean, uh, she was bawdy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Probably could outcurse him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We know that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was not a huge guy. She could probably out arm wrestle him. Uh, she seemed to win most of the fights. <laughs> <laughs> There was a story that I think it was David Niven told it that uh, they were at a because um, when he would go to a bar, Bogey, uh-huh. you know, people would say, "Oh, you're a tough guy," you know, "Let's see how tough you are." And somebody did that, and all of a sudden, bottles started flying, and Niven was underneath the table, and Bogart like crawled in on you know with him and says, "Don't worry, Mayo will handle it." <laughs> so. You know, it's just, you know, she came back to Portland, what, for, around 1947. Yeah, yeah. And he gave her he gave her a good settlement. I know that people say that she was destitute. She was not. Yeah, yeah. She had real she, estate. She did not die and, poor. Yeah. She invested her money in apartment buildings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and she kept a low profile, which she actually, I guess, the needle... Uh, Bogart, she started being seen around town with a guy that looked like him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe just a couple inches taller, though. <laughs> I probably well, anyone's taller than uh, Bogart. He had lips, right? I, uh-huh. I, you always see those pictures online of uh, of of him wearing the lips because Ingrid Bergman towered over him. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But she did make you know pretty good in in. Um, in 2019 money, she had properties that were worth over $34,000. Not bad. And she left 50, uh, 483000 in trust to her mother. Oh, wow. I yeah. mean, she, you know, she did not die, um, you know, uh, without any money. I mean, they like to make it pathetic. Oh, she just slipped into a delusional, you know, existence living with her mother. Yeah. I'm sure her mother had to take care of her a little bit, but no, she had enough money that she didn't have to. There's actually there was a scholarship at the Miss Caitlin School. Yeah, uh, which is still a school here now called Catlin Gable School. Catlin, sorry, and um, she she willed all her because she loved classic books. Uh-huh. She willed all her books to the school. Wow, wow. So she she was very she was very different than what people think. She uh-huh. wasn't just a drunk. No, and I no. want people, when they read my chapter, to realize that, that she wasn't just a homicidal uh, <laughs> wife of a, of a superstar. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, she was a dynamic personality, and she was an artist, and, and it all goes together, that, that she clearly did lose control, and she really did grapple with addiction, but um, she also was a sensitive artist and a really talented artist, and uh, you know, of course, throughout history, there are examples uh, of that, uh, so many of them, that, that um, sometimes, um, you know, you have to accept that two-sided coin of, of having demons and, and having the sensitivity to, to create. That's very well said. I wish I had said it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Laura, maybe that's a great uh, note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland, and it was a well, hell of a lot of fun. thank you for, you know, giving her some respect. Support for this podcast and for X-Ray comes from Mutual Materials, providing masonry and hardscape products to architects, designers, and homeowners. Whether it's brick, block, pavers, retaining walls, or stone veneer, Mutual Materials helps you create long-lasting indoor and outdoor spaces. Visit Mutual Materials' new showroom in Northwest Portland or one of its 18 locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find more information, ideas, and project photos, visit mutualmaterials.com. Mutual Materials, building beauty that lasts. Brian McConnell and Missy Mackey are here. Brian McConnell has spent the past six years as the general manager for Jake's Famous Crawfish, considered one of the top seafood restaurants in the nation. Jake's features a variety of fresh fish flown in daily. You can enjoy salmon roasted on a cedar plank, Oregon Dungeness crab, Chinook salmon stuffed with crab, shrimp and brie, great pastas, poultry dishes, and an excellent selection of prime steaks. Brian is also a 23-year veteran of the restaurant industry in Portland, including a long stint as the general manager of Henry's 12th Street Tavern in the former Blitz Weinhard Brewhouse. Missy Mackey oversees the sales force for McCormick and Schmick's restaurants, which is now owned by Landry's and owns Jake's. She manages the West Coast region, including Washington, Oregon, California, and Nevada. She's also a former on-air personality for KPAM Radio, where for six years she hosted the food show Simple Kitchen with Melissa Mackey. And she also has a background working for Kimpton Hotels and Pacific Coast Restaurants. Missy and Brian, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you. You bet. It's our pleasure. All right. I'd like to begin by asking you both just about your first impressions of of encountering Jake's, whether it was for a job interview or as a customer. Like, what do you remember about walking into that place for the first time? Well, you know, Jake's is kind of a magical place. You walk in and right away your your jaw drops and you look around and you, there's nothing like it in town, nothing like it anywhere else in the country, really. And so it's got the the big old gaudy frame paintings. It's got the the plush green carpeting, the hardwood booze, the parquet wood floors, the brass all over the place. It's just it's just got a magical feel to it, and, and it, it feels like something as it is from over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you remember that first time you saw it? Absolutely. And that was it, walking in. And I believe, honestly, it was for a job interview as I walked in and I said, wow, look at this place. Yeah. <laughs> Can I work here? Yeah. Yeah. And let I, me straighten my tie. Since, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> And what about you, Missy? Well, I was interviewing Brian. No, I'm just no, kidding. No, you were. <laughs> um, well, I've been in and down around downtown Portland in restaurants for 27 years. Uh-huh. So I've seen the whole thing happen. And so I have, I always bring up rollerbladed. I've rollerbladed down what used to be Stark, and now it's Harvey Milk. And, uh-huh. and for me, I think the thing that, number one, the outside of it, has never changed. Yeah, It's a corner that you know where you're at when you see it, yeah. especially if you're out partying in the 90s. You look up, oh, we're on, we're on 12th and Stark. You know where you're at. But the first time I went inside, I think what surprised me the most was that it was not modern. Mm-hmm. And the bar. The bar is what hit me yeah. because there's a trough under it. <laughs> And the story of the trough is a very interesting one, but people who live in Portland know it, 
And I recall being told that story and my jaw dropping to the ground. But um, well, now we got to hear that story. Okay. Well, you know who should tell the story is probably our general manager, Mr. Brian McConnell. Okay. Well, it's it's known as the P trough, and it's the trough that runs <laughs> along the front side of the main bar. Uh-huh. And back in the day, women were not allowed in Jake's. It was a gentleman's bar. Uh-huh. And so the story goes that the gentleman would be able to stay at the bar top with their beer and relieve themselves in the trough. <laughs> I love that we're both talking about this sort of uh, luxury and, and beauty and wood paneling and, and parquet floor and all this stuff and a place to take a whiz. Yes. Just nature calls. <laughs> well, you know, times have changed too, sure. uh, I suppose. Uh, and, you know, the other thing, Brian, I think of when I think of Jake's uh, from the from the times I've been there as a customer myself is is the wait staff there and and it, it wasn't just that they were debonair or or you know carrying these these giant trays or something I, I I got this sense that these these people were a reminder that waiting used to be an actual profession not something you did until you became an actor or something like that but but these guys are real pros and so um, you know I I seem to recall hearing that that. Um, that they have several decades between them, some of the wait staff. So could you just tell us a little bit about them? Well, that's absolutely true. I've got servers that have been there for 50 plus years. I've got, I would say a dozen, maybe 15 of them that have been there for over 30 years. And it's, it is a profession for them. It's not just something they're doing while they're going to school or it's a part-time in between, you know, destinations. These people have been there when they were 20 years old to get started and they're retiring in their 60s. I've got servers that are 70 years old and it, it makes for a certain different level of service because they are true professionals. They know the menu like nobody else. You can't go to a restaurant and have a server as, as knowledgeable as you do when you go to Jake's Crawfish because we'll serve 25 to 30 species on the menu every day, mm-hmm. and they know everything about it. They know where the trout came from. They know where the ahi came from. They know everything about the salmon, the crab, the oysters, the mussels. They know the wine list inside and out. So when you go to Jake's, you can expect a top-notch experience because of that tenure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I grew up working in my dad's restaurant, and I I know that working in restaurants, either uh, as a member of the wait staff or in the kitchen, can be hard. And so, what's keeping these people there for so long? Is it the relationship with the customers, or being part of this institution, or or both? What do you think? And money. I was <laughs> they, they do very well. Yeah. Uh, and there's a reason for them doing very well because it's an institution, and because the customers continue to come back, and it's such a busy restaurant, mm-hmm. they can make a great living working at Jake's. That's great. That's yeah. great, especially in this day and age where uh, you know it's 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 harder for people without a college education to to make a good middle class living and that sort of thing. They can at Jake's. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, I I'm curious. Maybe I'm a, a little bit more of a movie geek than the average person, but um, you know, I I thought of uh, Humphrey Bogart being for a lot of my life kind of an easy choice for for the biggest movie star of all time. But but I'm also you know getting older and and times change, and so um, I kind of have a feeling that that there aren't that many people making Humphrey Bogart pilgrimages there, that sort of thing. And so I'm just curious how much of uh, this sort of history involving Bogart and Mayo Metho and, and other movie people, uh, like how much 
that um, is something the average customer is aware of or, or what you hear from people? And, and I suppose there are other kind of bits of, of celebrity history that factor in, uh, in in the ensuing years of sense, though. But do you do you feel like, you know, what's your sense of bogey and the bogey legend as it relates to Jake's? Well, we do have a booth. It's our first booth in the restaurant. And there's a picture of Humphrey Bogart. And the story goes that when he was in town filming, he would sit at that booth. It was his favorite booth or, or anytime he visited town. But, you know, honestly, I think it's the history of that has probably faded mm-hmm. as most of the people that come in that are my age don't know as much about Humphrey Bogart as they did 40 years ago when they came in. I think the picture of Humphrey is 1941 that's mm-hmm. on the wall. So that, that gives you an idea. It's been a long time. So, yeah. you know, we have a lot of current celebrity sightings, everything from uh, uh, Michael Jordan and Madonna in the 80s to the, the, the entire San Antonio Spurs basketball team will eat at a restaurant every time they're in town to play a game. So... People continue to come in. The Humphrey thing, it's probably a little old, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with Brian. I think that, uh, number one, star sightings are not a surprise at, at Jake's Famous Crawfish, or Crawfish, as we, we fondly refer to it. Uh-huh. Um, it's one of those places, when you come to town, if you're coming to Portland, and particularly, say, you're playing a set over at the Rose Garden or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. You're and you have an opportunity in a city like Portland that's known for its culinary growth and all of that. You're going to ask your assistants to figure out where should I eat. Mm-hmm. We're going to be in the top three. Mm-hmm. There's going to be restaurants. There's amazing restaurants out there, obviously, um, that are uh, you're going to have experiences that are fantastic. But to have a true Portland local Pacific Northwest culinary experience with like a historical feeling, it's going to be crawfish. So, yeah. the, so the Stardar thing, you're going to see it all the time at crawfish. Huh. Yeah. Huh. I love that you shorten it to just crawfish. Yeah, yeah, because there is a like five foot red crawfish blinking outside my office. <laughs> my office and Brian's office are located on top of uh, Jake's famous crawfish. And I believe we have the original McCormick and Schmick's Bill McCormick and Doug Bill McCormick Schmick's office. Yes. He and I each yes. have one of those. Oh, which, wow. So I, I think I have Bill. She has the better office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the boss. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I also wanted to ask about Jake's kind of the, the physical layout. Uh, um, speaking of movie geek, there's a, a scene I love in the movie Goodfellas where they kind of walk into the Copacabana from the, from the back door and it becomes this ridiculously long and winding shot as you go through all the little rooms and warrens. And I felt like when I was being taken my table a time or two at Jake's, like a, a similar experience, like, wow, I can't believe it goes back this far. Right, haven't we crossed into like two or three other buildings or something at this point? And so, you know, am I right? Is it kind of like a more cavernous than people would realize? It's a massive sprawling restaurant. And I think a lot of people don't realize that from looking at it from the outside. You know, there's people that have eaten there for 10 or 15 years, and then finally they get an opportunity to get walked back into one of the further dining rooms, and they say, well, I, I had no idea this was back here. So there's there's the front bar. There's a giant dining room behind the bar. There's the front uh, dining area where the front host desk is, and then you go through an archway, and then there's this other room we call the J Room, which has another 40 booths in it and, you know, stained glass ceiling and Tiffany lamps. Then there's another mm-hmm. archway you go back again where people – oftentimes haven't been back there and there's another bar and another bartender there take, taking care of people at the bar top and it goes back towards a fireplace in the back it's it's a big property absolutely mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'd like to ask you too about the menu uh, and, and kind of how restaurants like this find the right kind of 
balancing act where, um, you know, the the DNA, the identity of the restaurant is that in a sense, like it, it doesn't change, that you can depend on having these, these classic dishes there. Um, but, you know, most restaurants that are uh, that come with a history of, of up to a century do have to kind of fine-tune themselves a little bit over the years. And, and so, you know, um, how has Jake's been successful at kind of, um, you know, retaining the essence of, of what people expect, but also maybe evolving with the times? I mean, maybe you're not using so much margarine now or something like that. Maybe the ingredients are a little different. Do people cook with margarine anymore? <laughs> I don't think that's legal. I feel like yeah. it's against the law. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, 95% of what we do is just maintain consistency. It's, uh-huh. it's producing the, the dishes that we've produced for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just about anything we prepare, we can prepare simply grilled with fresh vegetables and potatoes. And, and so there's always something for the, the healthy fare there as well. Mm-hmm. But we we really don't try to keep up with the Joneses. You know, mm-hmm. it's Jake's Crawfish. And, and, and you can go to, I mean, there's hundreds of restaurants in mm-hmm. town where you can go find the, the the neatest new thing and the, the center of the plate presentation and whatnot. But if you just want fresh, simply grilled seafood, maybe a light sauce with well-prepared vegetables and, and a starch, mm-hmm. you can't go wrong with Jake's. What's a go-to dish for each of you if you were eating there as a customer? The Dungeness Crab Leg Saute, which I don't think you can get anywhere else. It's it's actually a dozen Dungeness Crab Legs out of the shell put on top of sauteed artichoke hearts and mushrooms and a sherry wine sauce with butter. With the butter, of course, at the end. But we could leave the butter off if you need us to. No, no, you can't leave <laughs> off the butter. Uh, for me, it's uh, always going to be when the halibut comes into season, where mm-hmm. we always get some of the first halibut, I mm-hmm. believe, that yep. comes that gets caught, comes to crawfish, mm-hmm. um, or Jake's famous crawfish. And I... <sighs> I, I just I'm always gonna pick the fresh seafood and then I w- and and then just for the way I eat I always do the simply prepared. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that I think that people forget is in their mind they go back thinking because we're well we are known for our salmon stuffer we call it it's that salmon that's stuffed with crab and shrimp and brie and mm-hmm. it's so rich and so delicious but you can always get food you can always get our seafoods um, simply prepared with delicious vegetable and yeah. and and vegetable on the side or vegetable and a potato on the side but something that i like to point out about Jake's famous crawfish when people are like well that menu is so big i always say this menu is priced within reason mm-hmm. and the seafood is in season yeah those are two huge things and that's why i always think about there is like it is it is reasonable and it's always seasonable yeah yeah so. And what about the 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 namesake crawfish? Uh, um, you know, people have some associations maybe with like Louisiana cuisine, and and tell me about the the continuing interest that people have in crawfish at crawfish. Well, Jake's crawfish is uh, different than what you would find in Louisiana. It's a different species of crawfish that we actually get. It's called the signal crawfish, and mm-hmm. they're they're bigger than the one that you get down in the south of the United States. So. Our crawfish comes from Lake Billy Chinook, Oregon, mm. which is a sandy bottom, clean lake that gets fed by three different rivers. And, and the beauty of that is the crawfish are clean and they're sweet and you don't have to purge them. If you get something like, you know, the mud bugs from down in Louisiana, mm. they have to purge them for four hours just to clean them enough so you can eat them. Yeah. Jake's crawfish, you take it right out of Lake Billy Chinook, you pop it open, stick it in your mouth, and you're good to go. Yeah. 
Wow, Bill, Lake Billy Chinook. I I just stayed at a at a cabin near there, and I had no idea that you didn't uh, have a crawfish boil. Yeah, <laughs> should give us a call, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's so many jackrabbits hopping around. I thought maybe you know some uh, awesome pepper or something. Yeah, would be good. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I also wanted to ask you to about the building itself. Uh, um, you know, if we were to kind of look upstairs, uh, I know Jake's actually. Uh, occupies part of two buildings. But if we were to think about um, the Whitney and Gray building, uh, what sense do you have of of who's living upstairs or kind of the, the condition that the building is in and, and uh, you know, how the building is doing? Well, I think the building's doing well. You know, it, it's in the neighborhood where there's been brand new restaurants built, new condo towers built. Uh, and, and our building has been mostly left alone, but it's been maintained. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got uh, two full-time maintenance guys that work for me at the restaurant level, and there's full-time maintenance people that work in the apartments upstairs as well. So it's over 100 years old. It takes a lot of maintenance and upkeep, and there's always something that we're working on to keep it fixed, but it's 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 in good shape. It's got good bones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And boy, this neighborhood has really changed over the years a lot. I, I think of uh, when I moved to downtown Portland, when I I moved to Portland, which happened to be downtown in 1997, you know, it was on uh, 12th Avenue, um, you know, about six or seven blocks south of Jake's. And uh, um, it's just, of course, been incredible to see both the West End transform and the Pearl District. And so how has that affected Jake's? I imagine it's been good for business that the neighborhood has evolved. But, you know, do you have a sense of like, for example, is it is it more tourist now than it used to be? Did it used to be more of a neighborhood restaurant or has it been able to to stay that? Like, how has the 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 explosion of the Pearl District and downtown and the West End affected the restaurant? You know, I can only speak for the six or seven years that I've worked there, but it, it's since I've been there, which is a short period of time, really, it, it's always been a tourist destination, especially in the summertime. And, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons why is because we're known within the hotel community and the concierge, when you come into town from whether it's China or from Tennessee, mm-hmm. you say, hey, where do I go to eat in Portland? And we're definitely top three, what people yeah. are going to recommend, because they don't want to go to a chain when they come to Portland. They yeah. want to come to something that's unique to Portland. Yeah. So they send them to Jake's Crawfish. And so this time of year, we have tons of tourists that come in. And a lot, lots of times we have people that can't speak English and they show us pictures on their phone and they just tap it and we say, yep, we can do that for you. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the crawfish. We'll, we'll be right back. I want to make fun of them, but I probably had the exact same thing happen when I was a tourist in, in Paris. There you go. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, there's so many cool things about crawfish. Like people say that Henry Weinhardt put his brewery there Mm-hmm. So that he could eat lunch at Jake's. <laughs> I mean, talk about star sightings, right? Yeah. And now Henry's, where where we got Brian from here, Henry's Tavern is is two blocks away where it's now. I mean, if you moved here back in 97, you remember the old brewery that was there. Yeah. And it's now Jake's, uh, or Henry's Tavern. Correct. Excuse me. Yep. So, I mean, the whole underground situation. And, you know, that's not the original Jake's. It's the crawfish. There's be two crawfish restaurants. It was the original one was up on 18th and Washington, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and but it's now evolved into this great seafood restaurant mm. in our our new building. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> 137 years or whatever. <laughs> what are we at? 100 127 years. 127 years. Wow. And you know, I I think I remember when we were talking uh, before the recording that you mentioned uh, the building having a perhaps a ghost or two. What's the story there? I Those can't are speak to the ghosts. <laughs> they follow me. It's wherever I go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you have ghost sightings. <laughs> I oh yeah, yeah downstairs. All, like if we close all of the cabinets when we come in, they're all open. I'm just kidding. No, there's no ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Here he's looking at me like I gotta cut this. 
No, I, I don't think I've had any. I mean, I haven't been there as no, long. No, you know, I'll office. have a closing manager once in a while say they heard some strange noises, but there, there's apartment buildings there, so there's yeah. going to be strange noises. <laughs> and it's a party kind of street that we're on. Right. It's a loud street, you know, live music, all sorts of fun stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I'll let I, you know. If I, yeah. Someone well, taps me on the I'm not convinced. I, I I think you're wrong, and there are, there uh, are some exciting ghosts there that are that are waiting to tell their story. Okay, probably in the basement, right? <laughs> in the basement, if they're anywhere. Probably. Well, thanks to you both, uh, Missy and Brian, for talking with us, and it's a uh, great fun. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Right. Thanks to our interview guests, Laura Wagner, Brian McConnell, Missy Mackey, for talking to us about Jake's and a couple of its best-known patrons. In this episode, we focused largely on Jake's famous crawfish and the Humphrey Bogart mayo-methyl marriage that brought them to the restaurant. But, of course, the Whitney and Gray building has had a long history even by itself. It's maybe worth noting that the building began not as apartments but as a hotel— And in those days, the teens, much of the labor force was itinerant, and that's who the hotel served. Traveling salespeople, industrial workers, people who often went town to town and gig to gig. The Whitney and Gray was one of countless hotels serving these business travelers, much like the St. Francis Hotel, subject of a previous In Search of Portland episode. When I read the National Register application for the Whitney and Gray building, I had to laugh at the succession of different names uh, the hotel has gone by, as well as what became Jake's itself. For example, from 1911, the lodging would be known first as the Kingwood Hotel, then just a year later changed its name to the Van Gorder Hotel, which it stayed for four years before it was rechristened as the Hotel Vernon in 1916, then the Vernon Hotel in 1921, which it stayed for a mere two years before becoming known as the Iroquois Hotel in 1923. By 1930, it was known as the Belmont Hotel, but two years later it was rechristened again, the Hotel York, in 1932. After four more years under that moniker, the Hotel York became the York Hotel in 1943, then the Duke Hotel in 1949. By 1953, it was the Hotel Duke, the third time that its name was changed merely by reversing the order of the words. But the Hotel Duke turned out to be the last hotel on this site, and around 1968, it was converted to apartments. By comparison, the name Jake's Famous Crawfish has been lasting, adopted in 1927 and kept ever since. But it went through seven different names of its own before that, including the Freeman and Hackman Restaurant, Jacob Mueller Soda Drinks, Mueller and Meyer Soft Drinks, Mueller and Meyer Cafe, and the original name, Mueller and Meyer Saloon. Don't worry, though, there will not be a quiz on this later. When I look around the neighborhood today, it's an interesting marriage of glass and steel towers with these three- and four-story historic buildings like the Whitney and Gray. This is part of downtown, after all, and the city is in the midst of a nearly half-century-long effort to densify instead of sprawl, which means that zoning increasingly allows taller buildings that may seem out of scale compared to the fabric of historic buildings around here, including not only the Whitney and Gray, but McMiniman's properties like the Crystal Hotel and the Crystal Ballroom, as well as the historic Mark Spencer Hotel. This seeming incongruence of scale has prompted a lot of debate locally about building height and what's the best way to honor the integrity of these old buildings. But I don't think it's so bad to have tall new buildings next to short old buildings. 
what's important is that we do everything we can to preserve the old buildings, to prevent owners from tearing them down, and to incentivize their renovations. Unfortunately, both the city of Portland and the state of Oregon could be doing more with both the carrot and the stick. The city's historic building inventory hasn't even been updated since the 1980s, and state law gives the most power and prerogative to building owners, making it all too easy to bring in the wrecking ball. We also don't have as robust an array of tax credits for historic preservation as we should, and as most other states have. This combination of factors has led to some tragic demolitions in the downtown core, a beautiful historic buildings like the Ancient Order of United Workmen Temple last year, or the Rosefriend Apartments a few years before that. But if there were better incentives and stronger preservation laws, those irreplaceable pieces of our architectural fabric wouldn't have had to be replaced. And of course, they can't be replaced. I guess that's why I called them irreplaceable. <laughs> Yet those demolitions only make buildings like the Whitney and Gray more special. Not that it's some unforgettable, eye-popping work of architecture that attracts tourists taking selfies, but because it's a nice, humble patch in the downtown core's fabric of old buildings. A few days ago, I was watching an episode of the TV show Grimm with my partner, which, for several years this decade, was filmed in Portland. The show often used old buildings here in town to film scenes that took place in older European cities on the show. The white stag block in Old Town, for example, in the episode I saw, was cast as a building in Vienna, Austria. And I love that. I love that our buildings give Portland that possibility. I'd like to see, say, Houston, Texas, or San Diego, California, stand in for Vienna, because I don't think it would be very convincing. In Portland, our old buildings, like the Whitney and Gray, they give us atmosphere. Quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be Mutual Materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile from Mutual Materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out Mutual Materials. In Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks to our producers, Amalia Boyles, Ed Curtis, and Chase Spross. Thank you as well to my musician friends and Beauty Pill, including songwriter Chad Clark for graciously allowing us to use one of their tracks for our podcast theme. Thanks as well to Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo. And thanks to Nikolai Kruger for creating an original artwork to go with each building we feature on In Search of Portland. That artwork can be found on our website. In fact, you can find every episode of In Search of Portland at xraypod.com or wherever else you may get your podcasts. This is our next to last episode of the season, and it's been a blast. So thanks for listening, and please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Adios for now.